If you would like a Bible, the ushers would be glad to get you one. We have a number of pew Bibles as well in the library, so um, if you could open your Bibles up to Matthew 5, we'll be there today. get to welcome this morning for the first time, Jamie Doyle is with us. Congratulations, guys. We're so glad that he is here with us. God bless you with this beautiful boy. Well, we are in a series on the Sermon on the Mount, going through Matthew chapters 5 through 7 and learning about kingdom living, learning about what it Life is under the King, the King being Jesus, a life dependent on Him in every way, and by His grace, living for Him in what we do. And so we've spent some time, had a couple messages already. Uh, the, a couple weeks ago, we looked at the Beatitudes. We learned about these eight characteristics that describe the, the character of someone living under the King, these kingdom qualities. And we spent some time last week looking at being salt and light in the world, that as those that by grace follow the King and walk in these kingdom qualities, that there's a kingdom mission for us to interact with the world in such a way to preserve it from greater corruption and influence it for the glory of God. So this kingdom mission flowing from these kingdom qualities. Today we're going to learn about kingdom obedience. As Jesus teaches us, about living under His reign, obeying God's law, and actually fulfilling His law in the fullest sense of that in Christ. So we'll take a look at Matthew 5:17 through 20, uh, and then spend some time focusing on that. But before we do that, let's pray. Because ultimately what we want to do is encounter the living God as we hear from His Word and be transformed as He speaks to us and imparts life. So Lord, we come before You right now. We thank You for Your Word. We thank You, Lord, for this wonderful teaching. Thank You, Jesus, for Your care for us and for Your church that You would give us this wonderful sermon. And Lord, we pray that You Yourself, by Your Spirit, would come and speak to us. And Lord, we would hear from You and, and receive life from You, Lord. We would be called to fresh faith and repentance and, and obedience in You as a result. Lord, help me to serve Your people. Uh, Lord, You know how I have wrestled with this text, trying to understand what You've taught and, and trying to think, how can I serve You and Your people best? Lord, I am very limited and weak, yet You are glorious and love to show Yourself strong and weakness. And the result being that we know it's You who is at work and not any person. So Lord, would You do work that way. We thank You for Your blood, Jesus, and Your life. We can come before You welcomed into Your presence. So Lord, would You speak to us and would You change us and would You glorify Your name through our lives as a result, we pray. In Christ's name, Amen. Amen. Matthew 5, 17-20, as Jesus continues to teach about kingdom living, He says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly, I say to you, until heaven and earth 
pass away. Not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Matthew 5:17 through 20. We're going to take some time to look at this short and packed passage from Jesus. We're going to look at first that the law must be fulfilled. That God in His person has determined that the law, the, the truth of the Old Testament, the law and the prophets, it's, it's truth, it's themes, the commands of God, the entirety must be accomplished. And therefore, we're going to learn that Christ Himself fulfills the law. And then from that, and in that truth, that His people as well fulfill the law. That's really what Jesus is teaching us, these three things. The law must be fulfilled. Christ fulfills the law. His people are to fulfill the law. So let's start first. The law must be fulfilled. Jesus makes it very clear in the beginning that He has not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. And we'll talk more about that in a few minutes. But He establishes the reason for that. And what follows, he says, For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. He makes a very emphatic and clear statement in that verse, verse 18, that the, that the law will be accomplished. He says, For truly I say to you. That's something that Jesus, an expression that he uses elsewhere. In Scripture as well. He uses that expression when he wants to emphasize that this is a fact. For truly I say to you, or amen, amen, I say to you at times as well. Amen, I say to you. Truly I say to you. The same word uh, in the original language. Truly I say to you. And we, we don't tend to use that expression. We might, not, might say something like, make no mistake about it. It is an undeniable fact. Make no mistake about it. It is undeniable fact until heaven and earth pass away. Not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Jesus is emphasizing that this is a truth, that the law is a permanent thing that will not pass away until all is accomplished. He says until heaven and earth pass away. So it's, it's something that is not going to happen until heaven and earth pass away, until there is cataclysmic change in the universe. The law will stand until... It is accomplished until heaven and earth pass away, until God comes and concludes all things. The law will be permanent until it is fulfilled, till everything is accomplished. He further says, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law. An iota was the smallest letter of the alphabet, both the Greek and, and, and in the Hebrew alphabet, uh, a different letter, but the same sort of letter, an I. Equivalent to our I. Our, I think, is our I the smallest letter in our alphabet? I think so. It's a, just a little bit of a line. Uh, they had a, an I, an iota, with a little line. We put a little dot on top of our I. I don't know why we put a dot on top of our I. I don't know if anyone knows why we put a dot on top of our I. I wonder if, if like years ago, the scribes thought this line's kind of lonely here all by itself. 
So we'll give it a little companion. We'll put a dot on top of it uh, to keep it company. I don't know. Um, but that's not the point here. Jesus isn't fixating on handwriting. He's making the point that not the smallest bit of the law, even the little letter iota or, or yod, will not diminish, will not, will not be, will not pass from the law. Not the smallest dot as well. And, and when you would write in Hebrew, there were little changes you'd make to letters to change them from one letter to another. Kind of like how we take an I and we add a little turn to it and it turns it into an R, right? Makes a little, an I to an R. Jesus is saying not the smallest little detail, the smallest little thing, not the smallest I, the smallest little turn of the pen, the smallest little truth, the smallest little commandment, not the least thing, not a single thing, and the whole law will pass until all is accomplished. He is emphatically stating that truth, that the law is a permanent thing that stands to be fulfilled. He's not come to abolish the law. He's not going to come to somehow just ignore the law and say, no, 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 forget about that whole Old Testament thing. You don't need to know the Old Testament thing. It's just we're doing a new thing here. Forget the Old Testament. No, he's coming to fulfill everything that's in the Old Testament. He's come to fulfill it, to see it accomplished. And it will stand until all is accomplished. Not a single bit. It is certain, he says, that this indeed will happen. It is a certain thing that the law will be fulfilled. There are certain things. This is a certain thing. There's not much we know about life. There's not much we know that will happen. Ben Franklin said, in this world, nothing can be certain except death and taxes. You guys know that quote? Imagine if you could be certain about a lot of things. Imagine if you could have been certain back in 1980 that Apple was going to do really well in the future and you bought stock at $22 a share. And if you had been able to know for certain that Apple stock was going to top out around, what, around 200 a share, splitting three times. Uh, if you had known that for certain and took out a loan for $15,000 in 1980 and bought stock, it would be worth over a million dollars today. You could have been certain, but you don't know. That's the problem, right? We don't know what the future holds. I'm not saying buy Apple stock or anything like that. It might, it might dive tomorrow. Um, but there are a few things we know for certain, but we can know this for certain. Jesus says the law will stand. Not a bit will pass away until all is accomplished. He establishes that with this emphatic language. Truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Because the law, the Old Testament, is God's very Word. And His character, His being, determines that this was not given lightly. This was not given just as a little thing that is to be ignored. No, it is given in truth from the God who is truth itself. And who has spoken and His Word holds to be fulfilled. So Jesus is making it clear. This thing stands. The law stands. And then he says in that first verse, do not think because of this truth. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law of the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. The law stands. And what's going to happen throughout the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is talking about how the law is fulfilled by His people. But He establishes before He gets into that in this passage how He Himself 
fulfills the law. Really, the most important statement in this passage, in this paragraph, is that first one. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law of the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. The most important thing said here is that Jesus came to fulfill the law. And it is so important as we go through the Sermon on the Mount. It's just full of wonderful commandments, wonderful truths about kingdom living. It's so important that we not forget that Christ Himself has come to fulfill the law first. That Christ has come as the King to lead us into new life in Him. To lead us into forgiveness in Him. To to lead us into dependency and joy and the fruit of the Spirit in Him. That He is the one that comes as the King. And these kingdom truths, these commandments in the Sermon on the Mount flow from a life under the King. Dependent on the King. Living for the King. So before there's anything else in the rest of this passage, there's this truth. I have come to fulfill the law. Now he's going to talk about later how he calls us to be part of fulfilling the law. And really what he does after this is he goes on in this, this subsection of the Sermon on the Mount to give us six different ways to truly heartfelt, in a heartfelt way by the power of the Spirit to fulfill the law. So he's going to go on to that. This sermon, the thrust of this sermon is indeed about God's people walking out kingdom ways. God's people fulfilling, obeying the law. But before there is any of that, there is, I have come. I have not come to abolish it, but to fulfill the law. To fulfill the law and prophets. Before there is any ability to obey the law of God, there is first the obedience, the fulfillment of the King Himself. Jesus came to fulfill the law. He fulfilled it as a perfect Jew. He was a Jew who lived under the law, the full law, as, as a Jewish person, as part of the nation of Israel. He came under and, and submitted and lived under the law. He submitted to the requirements of the law, the ceremonial aspects, the, the, the behavioral aspects. But He did it not just, not just in a surface way, not just in an outward way, but in a heartfelt way. He embodied in His life and how He lived the outward obedience and the inward obedience, the heart of obedience to God. In his day, many were flawless in obeying the law in terms of outward obedience. Paul said he was flawless as a lawkeeper. The Pharisees, in many ways, seemed to be flawless. But Jesus was much more than they in his obedience. It was heartfelt, joy-filled, faith-propelled, dependent on His Father in His obedience to the law. It was not drudgery for Jesus to fulfill His Father's commandments. It was joy for Him. It was what He wanted. He loved the Father. That, the, the law is summed up in love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. And that was how Jesus lived. It was His joy to do that. To love the Father. To live for the Father. To delight in the Father. To commune with the Father. And in His name to love his neighbor as himself. He was the perfect, flawless Jew. He fulfilled the law in that way. He fulfilled all righteousness as he himself said he came to do. And he was the ultimate and perfect Israelite. And he also not only fulfilled the law as the, as the ultimate Israel, 
but also by fulfilling the types and patterns and prophetic aspects of the law as well. I think in your Sunday school class, those who are in the class, you're learning about this. We did a series uh, a year or two ago on Christ in the Old Testament. And you can just spend your life looking at how Christ fulfilled the Old Testament. He is the second Adam, the perfect second Adam who succeeded and obeyed where Adam failed. He is the seed of Abraham who came and fulfilled all the promises and made it possible for Abraham to be called and blessed and chosen by God. He is the new Moses, the final and perfect temple as well, the place where our sins are atoned for and we encounter God. He is the suffering servant of Isaiah 53. He is the final and perfect Lamb. He's the Son of David, the ultimate prophet, the light to the Gentiles, the Spirit-anointed one promised in Isaiah 61. He is the capstone rejected by the builders, but chosen of God in Psalm 118. He is the promised resurrection. He is the judge of all men. He fulfills the entire Old Testament in His life. His life was about fulfilling all these things. And after the climax of the fulfillment in His death for people's sins and in His universe-changing resurrection. He appeared to His frightened disciples. And they were shocked. Because He was formerly a dead man and now He stood among them. And He said to them, Why are you troubled? And why did doubts arise in your hearts? See My hands and feet that it is I Myself Touch me and see. And then he said, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. And it says, Then he opened their minds to understand the Scripture. Can you imagine being there and hearing from the Savior and then having Him open the Scriptures and go, it says earlier, with two disciples on the road to Emmaus. He went from the beginning through the prophets and explained everything in Scripture that spoke of Him. The Old Testament and all that it is is fulfilled in Christ. He did not come to abolish the law. He came to fulfill the law and the prophets. This point must not be lost on us. And this is, this is theological truth But it's not to be theological truth that just kind of remains in our minds somewhere as a concept. It's so important to not have this truth lose its impact in our lives. That Christ came to fulfill the law, to accomplish obedience to the law. God has given us His Word. He's given us this book. He's given us this revelation of Himself. God Himself in this book teaches us that He is the One who made all things. He is the Creator. He created all things. He made the the, the heavens. He made the sun and the moon and the stars. He, He made the earth. He made the plants. He made the animals. He made life. He made space. He made time. He made everything. The The book tells us that. And it is His prerogative as the Creator to govern His creation. And to, in His goodness, in His graciousness, in giving all these things and, and, and making His creation and making us in His image and placing us in the midst of that creation to call us to response to Him. To create us for Himself. 
to know Him, to love Him, to enjoy Him, to obey Him. And so in this book, he reveals this truth, that he is the creator, and he has this divine prerogative in pouring out grace to call us to response and to rightly expect us to love him with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength and to love our neighbor as ourselves. It is reasonable and right, and it is his prerogative, and it's revealed in the book. And we see his commandment to Adam. We see his call to Adam, Adam of I've placed you in this garden. I've given you all these things. I've given you all these trees to eat. I've given you my creation. I've given you a a, a beautiful wife to walk with together in partnership. And I ask you to do this. Believe me and obey me in this simple way. Just avoid that one tree. Avoid that one thing. And show me your responsiveness to my grace by believing me and obeying me. He had every right to do that. And it was reasonable and right. And what did Adam do with Eve? He failed. He doubted. He let the enemy convince him of a lie. And he spurned God and walked away tragically. And then he reveals to us in this book that he didn't give up there. He clothes Adam and Eve with animal skins that foreshadow that his provision for them somehow. And then He calls people to Himself. And even when man does its worst, mankind does its worst to reject Him and spurn Him and and live on its own, God calls man to Himself. And He calls a generation. He calls a a line to Himself, a line of Seth, and and preserves them. And preserves them in Noah. And then does even more than that. As mankind runs away, He calls Abraham again. And calls Abraham. And through Abraham, He calls the people to Himself. And He blesses His people that are an undeserving people. The book reveals it. And He ultimately delivers that people from Egypt, from sin and estrangement from Him in mighty power. Again, pouring out grace on them and calling them to response, to obey Him. He says, here's my law. I'm the Lord God who brought you out of Egypt. You shall have no other gods besides Me. His basis of the call of obedience was His graciousness to them. I've delivered you. You've seen my hands. Now walk with me. And again and again and again and again in the book, he pours out grace and calls for response. And again and again and again and again. Mankind fails to respond. And we all know that that commandment is reasonable and good to love him wholeheartedly and to love one another. It is the only right response to such a God. So this book stands in testimony against us in its righteousness. The commandments of God are right and good. And this law stands and it must be accomplished. Where is the man who will finally obey God? who will finally respond to God, who will finally depend on God and walk in His ways. Is there no one? That's what the Old Testament really is to do. Yet there's promise after promise after promise of provision of a champion. Provision of one who would fulfill, who would obey. 
That must not be lost on us because we stand accountable to God to obey the book, to respond to His grace, to walk in His ways. He is good and gracious and holy. God is not a fool. He is gracious and good, but He's not a senile sugar daddy who says, yeah, I love you, but go ahead. Whatever you want to do. He is holy. He is right. He knows and understands justice. And I, I fear for many who will be surprised on Judgment Day to know that not only is He loving and good and patient and kind, but He's holy. And He's the ruler and the king. And we owe our allegiance to Him rightfully. And He calls us to account for that. And the book leaves us completely exposed as desperate failures. And it calls for justice. And it teaches us the just consequence for lack of dependence on God and therefore failure to obey God and love Him is nothing short of alienation and condemnation. Alienation from God. And if we persist in that state, that alienation will be permanent and eternal. And that is justice. That is rightness. That is goodness. And we all stand under that sentence because of our complete failure. The law of God stands as the perfect standard. Glorious in its beauty. Terrible in its perfection. We must hear that. We must see that. When the law is taught, when we see the Old Testament, glorious in its beauty. But ourselves exposed as failures. Uh, story that might help a little bit, just as a word picture. Recently, I, I've been doing push-ups um, in the morning. And I'm uh, 45 years old, and I'm actually somewhat impressed with my ability to do push-ups. I, just so you know, I, I, do, I do two sets of 40 in the morning. Yeah, anyone else here can do that? Two sets of 40. I think if I really pushed it, I could do 100 in a row if I did it. I, I mean, I, I usually you know, take it easy on myself a little bit by doing 40, then resting, then doing 40 more. But I think I could do 100 in a row. Um, and, and I got to thinking, you know what? Do you know? Yeah, right now? <laughs> afterwards. I'll do it afterwards. Uh, <laughs> anyone want to challenge me to do push-ups on this? We'll do that afterwards. But I, but I started to think, you know, 100 push-ups for a 45-year-old, that's pretty impressive. You know, I don't, I don't know if, I mean, I was strong as a kid. I'm not sure I would have done as many. But, and I, thought, I started thinking to myself, you know what, I wonder, like, if there's some sort of record that maybe I could go for. Maybe they have a record like the most push-ups by a guy over 40. And I thought, you know, I mean, maybe, you know, maybe it's 500, something like that. You know, that's a lot. But if I train and stuff and do my push-ups, maybe I'll make it. So, so I actually sincerely looked it up thinking, well, maybe there's some record nearby. 
And uh, just curious, it wasn't necessarily serious. I would have talked to my wife before I made that decision to train for that, but and she would have brought me back to reality. <laughs> Anyhow, anyone know what the record is for push-ups, consecutive push-ups? Some of you I've had this conversation with, so don't, don't cheat. Anyone know what the record is? You think it's 500? 1,200? Higher. Anyone guess higher? It, the record is 10,507 push-ups consecutively by Minoru Yoshida from Japan. Forget any attempts to do any record on my part. <laughs> Obviously, I, I won't come close to it. I, I don't know if he was, yeah, he maybe he wasn't 45. But I don't imagine if, even if he was 20, that the, you know, at this point if he's 45 now, he can probably crank out about 8,000 or something. So forget it. There's no, there's no attempt on my part to meet this record. <laughs> well, the whole point of the story was that the law of God is like that. It is glorious. It is perfect. And it calls us to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And it's not unreasonable because of who God is and how He's created us. He's created us for Himself. It's not unreasonable. But for us, the, the, the idea of obeying, the God, of obeying God is like doing 10,500 push-ups. Because the reality is, I don't even think we can do one spiritual push-up left to ourselves. Not because the law is unreasonable. Not because the Word of God is unreasonable. It's very reasonable. I can't even do one on my own. Why is that? Because I simply left to myself don't want to do one push-up for God. That is a sad state of mankind since the fall of Adam. Is we have this crazy disposition in us that says, God, I just don't want to live for You. That's the, the, the raw ugly truth at the bottom of it is I just don't want to do push-ups for you. I want to do push-ups for me. And I want them to be my sort of push-ups, not yours. I simply do not want to depend on you and live for you. Bottom line. So I'm not even going to do a one. Or maybe I'll pretend to do one. I'll do knee push-ups or something. But I'm not going to do real push-ups for you. The law exposes that sad reality for all of us and leaves us exposed and, God willing, desperate for God. Desperate for help. Desperate for assistance. God, look at my ugly heart left to myself. I don't even want to do one. And I read your law, and I get repulsed, actually. I read the Sermon on the Mount, and I come under condemnation, and I want to run away. And I see that it's beautiful, and I know it's glorious, and I know it's right, and I love who, who you are, Jesus, but in and of myself, I don't want to do that. Please give me an out somehow. The law of God leaves us exposed that way. But He's not left us alone. There is a champion. There is a champion who has done it. There's a champion who's done the 10,000 push-ups, done the one, done the two, done the 10,000. Please the Father in every way. Love the Father from His heart. 
obeyed the Father. Obeyed Him in every way. Emptied Himself and became a man, a poor baby, born in a stable with nothing. Emptied Himself of glory then lived this life of of obeying His parents and, and loving others and sacrificing and being poor and walking around without a home so that He might disciple 12 men and 70 others and 120 men and women. That He might impact their lives and doing good and healing the sick, raising the dead, casting out the demons. But doing even more than that, knowing that at the end of His ministry stood the cross, stood this horrific death that not only was horrific physically, but ultimately brought the wrath of God on Himself for sinners. That ultimately meant facing a thousand, thousand hells as God put the sins of His people on Christ and punished Him for something He didn't deserve to be punished for. His obedience was that complete, that perfect, that it, it went to the point of death on the cross for sinners like me who don't even want to do push-ups for Him. Sinners like you who left to ourselves don't want anything to do with God. Give me everything good about creation without God, please. Why? Why would He do it? Amazing love. Amazing love for His Father. Amazing love for His lost sheep. His champion has done it. And so when we read this passage, and when he says the law must be fulfilled, it stands until all is accomplished. When we see that, and then he says, I have not come to abolish it, but to fulfill the law. To fulfill the law and the prophets. This is what we should be thinking about and recognize and have a heart full of gratitude that He did come and He was the champion and did obey and the Father approved of all that He did. Therefore, He was exalted to the highest place, it says in Philippians 2. He was exalted. The Father said, I am pleased with your full obedience and now I raise you from the dead victorious over sin and death and appoint you as the King to judge all mankind. And with you are now all of your people swept up in your victory, your champion, any and all who would repent and believe in Him. He rewarded His obedience with all these things. And He is our champion. He has fulfilled the law and the prophets. And we stand on our champion because of Him and His life and death. And now the King calls us to follow Him in His way. He transforms how we relate to the law. The law no longer condemns us because He was condemned for us. And we are forgiven. And we are free in a new sense. We are not under the law in that we have to merit God's favor. We have to somehow find a way around our sinfulness. If, if I can just fake holiness somehow and Get into heaven where I can just be good enough somehow to maybe offset my disobedience. That will never happen. That is a deception. And if we are honest before God's law, we are desperate. But there's a champion. And now we relate to the law differently. It's been 
fulfilled, both in its call for justice and its call for obedience in the Son. And now we come to the law free and forgiven. And now the law is a gracious and wonderful invitation from God to live in His kingdom ways. And the joy that comes and the fruitfulness that comes and the glory for God that comes as a result. So when we read this passage, before there's any obedience, there's Jesus' obedience. His fulfillment. He fulfilled the law and pleased the Father. And because of that, now we are able to fulfill it in Him. So there's more to the passage. It doesn't just stop with 17 and 18, as wonderful as that is, and as central and important as that is for us. Christ has come to fulfill the law. The law stands. It's been accomplished by Christ. But now He says in verse 19, Therefore, based on the permanence of the law and its ways and its need to be accomplished and fulfilled, therefore, we are to walk in obedience as well. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. Under the king, you're in the kingdom of heaven. Thank God. But if you treat the law as defunct and unimportant, who cares about what God says? I'm free. I'm forgiven. I'll do what I want. You are least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. The law stands to be fulfilled. We are able now in Christ because of our new way of relating to Him and His law and of the new life that comes through Him. We are now able to actually obey the law. We are actually able to do some push-ups by grace in Christ for the Lord. It's amazing. They're wimpy push-ups, but He's pleased with them. And He gives us grace to do that for Him. We are actually able to obey the law. We are actually able, by faith in Him, to accomplish righteousness. That's amazing. Isn't it? That is wonderful. Listen to what the Word of God says. There's a number of truths that that I want you to hear, and and I, I don't want you to be convinced just because I'm telling you these things. Look at the Word. I think we have about four verses, John, to put up from Romans and elsewhere. Romans 8, 3-4 says, For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin He condemned sin in the flesh, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. So Paul is teaching that Christ has come and died for us that the righteous requirement of the law may not only be fulfilled through Christ, but in us as we walk by the Spirit. He says a couple of verses later, for the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. The, the natural man, apart from the Spirit, is naturally hostile to God. Indeed it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. And the implication is you, however, can obey the law. You, however, can please Him. You, however, can live for Him because of the Spirit, because He's come and fulfilled these things. And now, by earning these things, He sends His Spirit out to His people on Pentecost. And to be a believer is to have the Spirit in us. And now to be able to actually obey the law in, the, in our hearts 
Going on, Ezekiel 36, we see the promise that I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Jeremiah 31, but this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Thank God for the new covenant. Thank God for His promise. Thank God for Jesus Christ that now there's life in us, new life, and His law is written on our hearts. And though sin might remain, though there's real struggles, there's something going on inside of us that is a miraculous thing and is precious. This longing in our hearts because of the Spirit to please God, to love His ways, to live for Him. And when we see the Sermon on the Mount, no longer is it just condemnation and running. It is, Lord, I'm forgiven. I embrace this way. I want to be like this. I want to be like You. We are called be part of the fulfillment of the law. The law is not somehow defunct and irrelevant. We are rescued from the power and penalty of the sin, of sin through the death and resurrection of Christ and given this new birth and indwelling spirit that we might truly and sincerely, in a heartfelt way, obey the law, love God, and love others. God calls us to this. Jesus teaches us that our status in the kingdom is related to our obedience to the law. We all get in as we repent and trust in Christ and experience that new life. But we are rewarded in part by the measure of our obedience. Don't know how it all works out. Don't know how the Lord does that. I think part of how He does it is our ability to enjoy grace. And the new heaven, the new earth is enhanced as we reflect on a life and receive the reward of a life lived for Him in obedience to Him. But Jesus teaches that. Now you might be thinking as I'm saying this, okay, got that, understand that, okay. Jesus fulfilled the law, and now He's calling us to fulfill it. So what are you, are you saying that we need to start doing like prayer shawls and and, and, wearing, and not shaving our sideburns and, and not, not eating pork and going to church on Saturdays? Is, that, is the law like the whole Mosaic law? Is that what this means? Well, we understand how we relate to the law through the truth that Christ has come and fulfilled the law. He has accomplished and obeyed. And now our way of looking at the Old Testament is through Christ through His fulfillment, through His obedience. And so we see that He has fulfilled the ceremonial and the civil and the prophetic aspects of the law. He has fulfilled them. He is the ultimate type that those look forward to. They no longer stand over us. But the moral aspects of the law, the the holy ways of God, remain because God's character remains. He's still the same God. And so through Christ, we, we, we relate to those. And you'll see the New Testament is full of how to do that. So we're not left alone to try to figure out, okay, what parts of the law do we do, don't we do? And The New Testament stands for us as an example. And it's all done through Christ. And really, there's not enough time, and I'd love to, I'll do questions if you have any questions afterwards to try to help you with this. 
not enough time to go through all that, but we see it in the New Testament. So we understand Christ actually fulfilled the Sabbath. So he is our Sabbath. So the Sabbath, yes, is a wonderful principle of resting one day in seven. And that stands. That's a principle we want to honor. But we're not under it in the same way because Christ is our Sabbath. That's how we understand it. And you can do that for a number of Old Testament ways. I don't necessarily want you to go there right now. If you have questions, I'll be glad to answer. But I want us just to start with what's right in front of us. The Sermon on the Mount is a wonderful place to start to begin to obey the law as fulfilled through Christ and start seeing in His teaching what there is to do. And we will have uh, opportunity in this series as we look at the next six paragraphs as Jesus gives us very specific ways to fulfill the law by His grace as we follow the King. As we respond to this wonderful invitation. He says here that the final verse I want to address, that unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees and scribes, you can never enter the kingdom of heaven. And you may have seen that and thought, okay, what's going on there? Because as far as I understood, Jesus was the one who fulfilled the law. And we enter the kingdom of heaven through faith, dependent on this free gift of Christ's life and death. So what is this thing that now I've got to exceed the righteousness of the Pharisees and scribes? Oh no! I'm in trouble because they were really good at what they did, weren't they? They took it very seriously. They worked really hard to fulfill the law. So what is this? First, how could I ever be that good? And second, what, do I have to earn heaven to answer those first? Well, I actually don't think for the believer exceeding the righteousness of the Pharisees and scribes is all that hard. Because they were lacking something. They were lacking the heart of faith and dependency on God. They were dependent on their own strength. Their obedience was an outward obedience that was to establish their own righteousness before God. Their own worth to to stay in the covenant. It wasn't faith-filled, dependent obedience, heartfelt obedience. So when Jesus says your righteousness has to exceed the Pharisees and scribes, he doesn't mean that you have to like fast twice as much as they do and, and do more work. He means you need to be deeper in it. And if you are a believer, because the Spirit is in you, there is a depth there. There is real faith and therefore real righteousness before God. Now that righteousness will never earn heaven. Using the push-up analogy, you know, they're real push-ups. They're legitimate push-ups, but they're not really good ones and there's not a whole lot of them. Christ has earned heaven for us. And He is on whom we depend. But we are by His life in us now able to actually walk in righteousness and obedience. And as we trust Him for things, we please Him. And I wish I had time to go through how that looks because this week I want you to understand how that works. As you are faced with temptation and opportunities to disobey as you refuse to depend on yourself and cower under circumstances and trust in Christ, that is a real push-up. And God is pleased with that. Even if it is just enduring the trials of the week, perhaps you're sick, and just saying, Lord, help me, please, as I struggle with this, as I face these difficulties, help me. You're my God, and I have no other. And I want to please you with how I live this week as I trust you in these circumstances. Those are real push-ups 
And they please God. And as you walk that faith out in obedience and response and, and your, your ability to love others even while you're faced with trials, those are real push-ups. The Pharisees' push-ups weren't real push-ups. They were cheating. They were doing knee push-ups and impressing one another with how many they could do. And none of them counted. But in Christ, we can do real push-ups. If the band could come up as we close. We can fulfill the law. Amazing, amazing, amazing. But only by grace. Only in and through Christ. And this truth, this passage is so good for us. Because in this paragraph, we have Christ has fulfilled it. He is our righteousness. But then the call, you must, in me, fulfill the law. It protects us from the two extremes. We have an overhead to put up. Two extremes of license and legalism. i just touch these real quick. I hope we have an overhead to put up. License and legalism are like two swamps on either side of the path of life in Jesus. License is when we say, Jesus has fulfilled it. I don't need to do anything. I can do what I want. It's license to do what you want. It's not biblical. Legalism is when you say, I must fulfill the law to get to heaven. I must fulfill the law to maintain my status before God. Jesus has fulfilled the law. That's not true. But Jesus calls us to fulfill the law. So as we set our sights on that pathway, on the cross, on Christ Himself, we stay out of the swamp of legalism and license on either side, and we walk in His truth. That's what Matthew 5, 17-20 teaches us. That is the call of Christ. Gracious, gracious invitation He gives us. Let's pray. Lord, thank You that You have fulfilled the law. Thank You, Jesus. And thank You because of You fulfilling the law. Now we stand before the law not condemned, convicted, yes, not condemned, but forgiven by You and accepted through Your life and death. And now when we come to the law, it is a gracious invitation to live in a glorious way for You and to bless others in Your name. May we run hard after you in these things. May we fulfill the law as we depend on the one who has fulfilled the law. And may you be glorified, we pray. Amen. As I'm thinking about these passages that we've been reading for the last several weeks,